You're listening to Paley Matters, a podcast exploring the many realms of media and pop culture and society, brought to you by the Paley Center for Media in New York and in Los Angeles. Today, we've gathered a panel of experts in anticipation of the highly, highly anticipated April 14th premiere of Game of Thrones on HBO, the eighth and final season. Sadly, we get just six episodes this season compared with 10 over the first six and seven in the seventh, but some Game of Thrones is better than no Game of Thrones at all. Uh, First, I'm gonna go around the table and ask each of our guests to introduce themselves and talk about their own level of infatuation with the show. Hi, this is David Bushman. I'm a curator of television at the Palace Center for Media in New York, and we're here to sort of take a look um, and maybe some predictions at the upcoming eighth and final season of Game of Thrones, which premieres on HBO on April 14th. We have a whole room of experts here with us, three people in studio and one person remotely. So I'm going to we're going to go around the room and introduce ourselves so that the listeners will be able to associate the voice with the name. I'd ask you to say who you are, what your Game of Thrones affiliation is, and on a scale of one to ten, how you would characterize your level of fandom. We'll start with you, Ivan. Uh, Hi, my name is Ivan Hernandez. I am a writer and podcaster, co-host of the podcast Boars, Gore and Swords with comedian Red Scott. And I am someone who has had to have a fairly expert level of knowledge about this show because I've had to speak about it uh, cogently for eight years now. And I'm about ready for it to end. (laughs) Okay. Would you ever dress up as a Game of Thrones character? Oh, dear God, no. Okay. All right. No, I save that. I save that for casual X-Men cosplay. <laughs> okay. All right. Carol. Hi, I'm Carol Pinchewski. I'm a freelance writer. I write, I'm a contributing editor for sci-fi.com. I write for Geek and Sundry. I've written for Forbes. I've written about Game of Thrones for all of these places. And, and uh, I just love Game of Thrones. Uh, I would say that I'm, I guess, either an eight and a half or a nine level fan. Uh, but I've been a fan of George R. R. Martin ever since I ever since Fever Dream. I read it in 1984 and Joshua was my fictional boyfriend <laughs> for, throughout high school. And and I wrote a live action role playing game based on his uh, um, what is the series? Wildcard series. Yeah. And I met George R. R. Martin at a convention in 1989 and we just chatted. Nice guy. Yeah, you think you'd drop him a note to maybe speed it up a little bit? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Nate. Hey, I'm Nate Jones. Uh, I'm a writer for Vulture.com, where I write about movies and Game of Thrones basically exclusively. Um, I've covered the the show for about four years pretty intensely for Vulture. Before that, I recapped season four for People.com. And uh, in terms of fandom, I would say show maybe... Show used to be a 10, show is maybe a 7 now, but books is probably a 9. Well, what happened? That is that is the mystery uh, that I've been trying to figure out is it seems the show is not quite what it was when it started. And obviously every show goes through a similar sort of metamor- metamorphosis. You know, the lo- Lost is not the show that it was. Lost did not finish as the show that it started as. You know, Mad Men Saint. I think it's sort of the nature of long and running TV dramas is that they evolve. And I don't, you know, I think they sort of change and sometimes they get better and sometimes they get worse. And I kind of been trying to figure out what happened with Game of Thrones. Do you think it was season seven? Do you think it had anything to do with 
uh, the books running out or, or was it something else? That I think is, I think that is part of it. I think that, you know, you can sort of, when you go back, you can kind of see the area in which they sort of started walking without a net under the tight rope in terms of the book structure. And you sort of, you sort of feel the motivations of the plot kicking in and changing the way characters act in a way that it kind of didn't feel for the first five or so seasons. Um, yeah, and I think also part of it is that it, as as they've had to get to the end game, they've had to ramp up some of the more supernatural elements. And they've also had to increase the pace, right? Because they just have shorter seasons because they need to fit, They, you know, the budget needs to fit all the expensive dragons and white walkers. And because of that, they have to cut out a lot of sort of the more, sort of the more human seeming moments, I think is what's happened. Yes, but last season was possibly the, it's the only show where I could honestly say there was one mediocre episode in the entire series. Okay, well, hold that thought for a second. Spencer, you're up. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. Spencer, you're up. I'm Spencer Ackerman. I'm a senior national security correspondent for the Daily Beast and the co-host with Laura Hudson of the Citadel Dropouts podcast, and I'm probably best described as a Game of Thrones fan in the number. Great. Okay, so there seems to be a little bit of a theme here. Do we, is it the general consensus of this panel that Game of Thrones is not as good as it used to be? I think the problem is that it marketed itself at the beginning as like a genre fantasy show without all of the crazy magical bullshit. And because they kept being a genre fantasy show, they had to have a laser ice dragon. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's, you know, it's the constant expansion you have to do if you're a genre fantasy show, but it's also going against the spirit of the show, which is it's a genre show without all of the extraneous magical bullshit that all other genre sh fantasy shows have ever had. And it's what is it sacrificing by, by doing that? I mean, do you feel it's sacrificing some of the human drama? Well, I feel that the White Walkers are probably the least interesting villain because they're the kind of generic, we just want to kill every living human being villain. They don't have real motives beyond killing every living human being that we've seen so far. I don't know if the if the prequel series starring Naomi Watts will fill us in more. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I watched the first two season premieres last night uh, uh, for season one and two. And it's almost hilarious how much of a different show it is. Like half the cast is dead. Uh, the, the CGI is actually good now. There was a point in the season two premiere where they have one of the direwolves in, and it's like, this is PlayStation 2 level direwolf graphics. Okay. All right. But Carol, I, you disagree. Yeah, I, I kind of disagree. I um, want to yes. say before you do that, you had asked me before we started whether how polite you had to be, and the answer is not at all. Okay. So go ahead. So go ahead. <laughs> okay, Ivan, let me tell you how wrong you are. <laughs> go ahead. This is the spirit of discussion. Okay, so uh, um, yeah, it is might not be as strong as it has been in previous seasons. However, uh, I think a mediocre episode of Game of Thrones, and there have been almost no mediocre episodes, is still stronger than most of what you will see on television. Uh, in fact, I think there has only been one really weak episode, and that was that was the last season, season, what was season seven, seven? episode six, I yes. think it was, yeah. uh, where Arya and Sansa were were fake sparring with each other, uh, like as if like, oh no, do they not trust each other? Or are they going to kill each other? Like that, that was absolutely unnecessary, absolutely unnecessary, but it was very filmic. I think uh, if there are flaws in the show, it has to be because it's televised. We need to see 
we need to see payoff. But in the books, we don't really need that kind of payoff. We don't need to see people interact in horrible ways to add tension. The tension's already there in the books. That's an interesting point, because I would, in the, in the spirit of not being polite, I would <laughs> come back to you and, and argue with you about that later on. But go ahead, Nate. Um, yeah, I think, speaking of tension, I think there was sort of a tension between the way they, the message of the show and sort of the aesthetics of the show, right? The message of the show was always the Game of Thrones is a distraction, right? It is, you know, you can't say it's a climate change metaphor because he started writing, but it is sort of the same thing, right? It's the Game of Thrones is a distraction from the true threat, which is the White Walkers. But the problem is we spent, you know, five or six seasons being very invested in the Game of Thrones. And, you know, and the show itself is still sort of doing this in its marketing, you know, they you know, they released those character posters with a bunch of different people sitting on the Iron Throne. And so they're still trying to play up the, the oh, like who who's going to win in the end when recently the show has been trying to tell us, well, it doesn't matter who wins in the end because they all need to defeat the White Walkers. And it's sort of there's just a kind of a conflict there that the show hasn't quite been able to resolve. So that's interesting, too, because I, I sort of see this as uh, kind of a misdirection because I think that whatever happens in that battle with the White Walkers, there's still one more battle coming after that. And that's north against south and and but but anyway that's just my opinion spencer what do you think i think the trouble with the show is that it started out with rather profound and insightful things to say about human nature the human condition patriarchy uh the relationships of power that uh scale up from the interpersonal uh to the broad and social and now it's just run out of things to say about those things and it's not really a satisfying substitute to see a kind of gift fantasy battle conclusion with some sort of aftermath thoughts about uh, political conflict that appears, has always appeared, despite our invested in far less salient to speak to the prior point. What had made the show, I think everyone would probably agree, um, such a success uh, was, was precisely how felicitously it uh, handled imbalance between uh, these so-called real conflict, um, these, you know, sort of uh, epical fantasy monsters, um, with the kind of phony conflict that highlights uh, the, the, you know, typical uh, human uh, inability to, to, emphasize, to emphasize the true threat and tragically uh, fall into future-nessing uh, interfactional fighting. Uh, the trouble with that was the interfactional fighting was where you actually saw the profundity locally. And now we're looking at something of a spent effort of the ideas. And however the show concludes, it's going to be very, very difficult to challenge after that sort of sequence. So do you think, asking you the same question that I put to the others, do you, do you trace this, this change to season seven? And do you think it had anything to do with them no longer having the books to rely on for their narrative. I think there's something to that. Um, there's that hilarious scene, I want to say at the beginning of six, uh, where maybe it was five. The show's been kind of bad for pretty long time. Um, where, you know, you remember, you know, Tyrion and Green going to the, the dragon pit, uh, trying to, to coax one of these dragons into service to Daenerys. And you know, he comes out and he talks to Paris and he said, I work in an ideal like him again, punch me in the face. Stuff. That's, that's just not this character. Mm. Right. Uh, 
as, as, as we go sort of further off look, you get this kind of fantastic textural play uh, where the adaptation has outpaced the centrality of the initial source material. Um, but nevertheless, it's kind of become its own thing. It's just less Okay, great. Let me be reductivist here for a second and, and ask each of you a two-part question. Um, who is going to wind up on the Iron Throne and who should wind up on the Iron Throne in a perfect world? Or who would you like to see end up on the Iron Throne? It's open for anybody who wants it. I'm actually going to say that a lot of the who is going to finally be the one person on the Iron Throne stuff might be a red herring. And the show is basically going to end with like a dragon melting the Iron Throne and they're going to kind of unite as a kingdom with like multiple rulers uh, in a way so that, you know, they will fulfill the who is the final leader of Westeros without having to actually, you know, kill off all of the other characters who, you know, want to be on the Iron Throne so that, you know, just Daenerys gets to be it. Who, who would you like to? Is that the? I think I'd like want? Daenerys just to be. It. <laughs> I think that'd be nice to okay. finally conclude her plot, which has spent way too much time in Marine. Uh -huh. Like that's that's my other problem with the show, where they kind of extended a lot of the plots too far because that's how far they extended in the books. So you know, Daenerys has spent what, four seasons in Marine dealing with all of the slavers stuff, uh, which is, I assume, just, you know, it, it just ends with her leaving. <laughs> That's it. it. We were in there for like four to five seasons of just, hey, here are these, you know, uh, stand-in for Middle Eastern people who are so weird, according to uh, the uh, uh, Westerosi, uh, and then they just leave to participate in the big overarching plot. Okay. Uh, I think that the person who should have the throne is the person who deserves the throne, who, which is Daenerys. I think Daenerys absolutely deserves the throne. She's a competent leader. She has armies, plural, at her back at this point, uh, plus two dragons, three in the book. Um, but I think in order for her to get the throne, she has to kill Jon Snow. Um, we saw in the wow. we, yeah well in we there are two reasons for that um, one in the show when we see her having her vision uh, I think it was season three uh, she has or was it two she has a, a vision um, she is in the throne room and she is by the Iron Throne but snow is falling so I think that is a metaphor and the other reason I have is in the books um, there's the legend of Azora High who fought the who fought the uh, night, was it the Night King? No, they, he the, fought the darkness. Yeah, he fought yeah. the darkness, and uh, Azor High had to slay evil with a sword. But in order to temper a sword, he had to temper it through the heart of his wife Nissa. And as we know, Valyrian, the language of Valyrian, has both is gender neutral. So uh, the prince who was promised could be Daenerys. And in that case, if the metaphor continues, Jon Snow is Nissa Nissa, and she has to plunge her sword through his heart. So you think, just to be absolutely clear about this, that she's going to make a deliberate choice to kill Jon Snow yes. in order to ascend to the Iron Throne? Yes, I do. Wow, that's do. pretty bold, I, I think. I do, I do, because, you know, look at the books, look at the... Uh, okay. King's blood yeah. is magical. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, exactly. Okay. Um, this is me speaking as someone who has spent way too much time reading uh, Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire Tumblr blogs. So this is not an idea that <laughs> comes from me, you know, without any inspiration. This is sort of an idea that I've seen bumbling, 
are buzzing around a lot. And it's that basically um, Daenerys and Jon Snow and probably Tyrion are going to end up riding dragons to fight the White Walkers and they will sacrifice themselves to sort of eliminate, you know, the heart of winter and, you know, eliminate the White Walkers once and for all. And it will be the, up to the other characters to sort of pick up the pieces after them. So, you know, that that's the purpose of your brands and your senses. Um, and I think it's also in these sort of circles that I, that I enjoy reading, it's also uh, a popular idea that the Seven Kingdoms will, yeah, similarly, they will not be under one ruler that, you know, that, that the, the only thing that united the Seven Kingdoms together in the first place was dragons. And, you know, and once the Targaryens lost their dragons, there was sort of a hundred year period of splintering. Um, and then, you know, they sort of got united again by Robert. And then now that, you know, now that Daenerys is here, they thought that they might unite again under her, but probably, no, they might, you know, it might just sort of go back to being, you know, the way they were before Aegon the Conqueror. So, you know, you have the North ruling the North and the Stormlands ruling the Stormlands and sort of up to this sort of next generation to, you know, not be at war with each other, but sort of pick up the pieces, but kind of go their own separate ways and realize that, you know, there's not, nobody is going to be strong enough to rule the whole seven kingdoms after and, this threat. And you, Nate, you, you'd like to see that. that uh, I think, I think that that feels sort of at one with the themes and the narrative of the story and the characters. And yeah, I, I buy that. And that seems like a, it would be a satisfying ending to me. Okay. Spencer, what do you think? What do you want? So first, uh, I'm less interested in who sits on the Iron Throne and why they want to sit on the Iron Throne. Uh, the politics of this show have captivated me throughout, you know, however many seasons and however many you know, books and efforts standing numbers of peripheral books um, for, you know, I think to George R. R. Martin's credit and to Vinnie Weiss's credit, uh, real fascination with the intricacies of power and the meanings of power. And so we've yet to really see an argument for what it is that Daenerys would do on the Iron Throne. There's that famous, I want to break the wheel uh, speech that she delivers to Tyrion before they, they leave Marine. And it sounds great. You have no idea the, the further you inspect it, what it actually means. Um, similarly with Jon Snow, he has no vision. Uh, you know, it's, I think they're, they've, they've sort of put themselves into a couple options. One of them is you fulfill uh, these, these kinds of, uh, you know, long telegraphed uh, historical uh, and, and inter, you know, interworld uh, myths uh, that, that you guys have already referenced, they can do that, um, and that, you know, sort of gets you to the setup of the, you know, John, Daenerys, Tyrion, you know, three heads of the, of the dragon thing, or they could kind of steer to uh, what I think would be, you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind seeing this, um, closer to the spirit of the show than the spirit of the books, which is that uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's tragedy, it's randomness, and it's injustice that actually control the world. Um, and so, you know, I would personally like to see uh, Sansa on the throne of all of the people that we've, we've seen. She's the one who exhibits uh, the best combination of, uh, of wisdom, of guile, uh, and of concern for people beyond herself. I think it's going to be injury. Um, we've, we've sort of seen wow. now this, particularly in the last season, this obsession uh, with, um, with putting, you know, Gentry as this reincarnated, once again, hopeful 
Robert Baratheon figure. And, and that is, is kind of who I think, you know, in the spirit of George R. R. Martin's works, is the kind of person he would think ultimately, you know, in a kind of Fort and Broad, the end of Hamlet way, uh, ends up just sort of inheriting the ashes of, of, what's, of what's to come. That, you know, life works out in, in such a way that it's not, you know, stories of grand destiny. It's stories of circumstance and of injustice that, that lead us to, to the kind of miserable conclusions uh, that shape our lives. That's a really interesting uh, notion, Spencer. Um, thank you for sharing that. I have a question for you. You, you talk about Sansa being the sort of, um, I, don't, I don't know what perfect is the right word, but this combination of, um, I guess, a, a moral core, but um, wisdom and also you use the word guile. And there is a, actually a scene in season six where somebody, I don't remember if, whether it was Arya or John, somebody said, uh, Sansa makes a comment that she's learned a lot from Cersei. And I'm sort of wondering, is Guile something that seems to be something Jon Snow doesn't have because he refused at King's Landing to to, to say that he would bend the knee to uh, Cersei. But is Guile something that we see or George Martin sees or the show is trying to promote as a necessary characteristic of good leadership? Stark lost his head, uh, it's promoted precisely that idea that if you are looking for heroes who come to the wrong place, the heroes won't just get themselves killed, they'll get lots of people killed. Jon Snow is a stunning example of being a good, you know, like Rob Stark before him, of being a good hero and disastrous commander who just hasn't yet experienced the ultimate disaster. And in Sansa, you know. For, for everything that we say about her, like this is someone who's, who's willing to sacrifice her youngest brother uh, on the theory that he was going to get all day the hands of Ramsey Snow. Uh, I think the show is kind of setting us up at least to understand that this is the direction that they go in, that these sorts of, of moral compromises are in fact necessary if you're going to actually build power. And if you take the understanding that building power for a reason on behalf of other people, on behalf of whatever it is, you know, vision these various characters can or should be avatars of, uh, is necessary if you want to actually make the world better. Or alternatively, if you want to correct, it's still necessary. That, what do the rest of you think about that? Well, what about your opinion on who you think <laughs> is going to win? Um, who do I think is going to? I, I don't know. I see, I... I'm kind of an idealist, Spencer, in that I, I, there's, I'm a Stark person to begin with, <laughs> and I want Jon Snow on the Iron Throne. And that leads to this question. I guess it's a bone to pick with Carol and Ivan, because I think you guys are big Danny rooters. And, um, <laughs> here's a, I, I, I was rewatching season six, and I watched the episode where she burned, her jacket burned uh, Sam's uh, brother and father to death mm -hmm. because they refused to take the knee. And at the end of the episode, they had this interview with one of the showrunners and he's talking about, I, Carol, we were talking about this. He's talking about how, um, you know, so this is what happened and we sort of let, and we're, we're not making any judgment. We're letting the viewer decide whether her act is moral or not. And I'm thinking to myself, she just burned two people to death because they wouldn't bend the knee. And how is that moral in any way, in any universe? How is that moral behavior? She clearly 
didn't listen to to John when he said and Tyrion when they said don't burn the cities, don't don't attack yet with your dragons. She didn't listen to that. I think she's a, a character of serious moral uh what's the word I'm looking for? She's seriously dubious morality. Um but you guys seem to love her. Yeah, I do. I, I would say that part of what Daenerys has been learning is the main lesson of the show, which is that, you know, unlike how we've always been drilled into by like all fantasy games and like, you know, the more, you know, regular style book, the lawful good decision is not always the decision that is going to end up rewarding you. Like if she hadn't burned the Tarleys, maybe they would have gone off and managed to raise their banners against her in a way that would have inconvenienced or damaged her later. Instead, she took the problem off of the board completely in a way that might have seemed very violent. Are you endorsing? Are you endorsing I mean, I'm not saying that I would burn all of my enemies to death if they refused to bend the knee to me, but I'm not not saying that. She killed two Tarleys. She could have killed the entire army, mm -hmm, but she mm -hmm. chose to kill, to cut off the head, but just the head. But the uh, the thing is about Danny is that she's actually a, a stand-in for George R. R. Martin. George is Danny. You you think that he's in I love with Danny, that, yeah. but I, I... My name is Spencer Ackerman. I'm a senior national security correspondent for the Daily Beast and the co-host with Laura Hudson of the Citadel Dropouts podcast. And probably best described as a Game of Thrones fan. Great. Okay. So there seems to be a little bit of a theme here. Do we, is it the general consensus of this panel that Game of Thrones is not as good as it used to be? I think the problem is that it marketed itself at the beginning as like a genre fantasy show without all of the crazy magical bullshit. And because they kept being a genre fantasy show, they had to have a laser ice dragon. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's, you know, it's the constant expansion you have to do if you're a genre fantasy show, but it's also going against the spirit of the show, which is it's a genre show without all of the extraneous magical bullshit that all other genre sh fantasy shows have ever had. And it's what is it sacrificing by, by doing that? I mean, do you feel it's sacrificing some of the well, human drama? Well, I feel that the White Walkers are probably the least interesting villain because they're the kind of generic, we just want to kill every living human being villain. They don't have real motives beyond killing every living human being that we've seen so far. I don't know if the if the prequel series starring Naomi Watts will fill us in more. Uh, but yeah, it's just... I watched the first two season premieres last night uh, uh, for season one and two, and it's almost hilarious how much of a different show it is. Like half the cast is dead. Uh, the the CGI is actually good now. There was a point in the season two premiere where they have one of the direwolves in, and it's like this is PlayStation Two level direwolf graphics. Okay, all right, Carol, you disagree? Yeah, I. I Kind of disagree. I want to um, say yes. before you, you do that, you had asked me before we started whether how polite you had to be, and the answer is not at all. Okay. So go ahead. <laughs> okay, Ivan, let me tell you how wrong you are. <laughs> go ahead. This is the spirit of discussion. Okay, so uh, um, yeah, it is it might not be as strong as it has been in previous seasons. However, uh, I think a mediocre episode of Game of Thrones, and there have been almost no mediocre episodes, is still stronger than most of what you will see on television. Uh, in fact, I think there has only been one 
really weak episode and that was that was the last season season what was this seven. seven episode six i yes. think it was yeah. uh where aria and sansa were were fake sparring with each other uh, like as if like oh no do they not trust each other or are they going to kill each other like that that was absolutely unnecessary absolutely unnecessary but it was very filmic i think uh, if there are flaws in the show it has to be because it's televised we need to see we need to see payoff but in the books we don't really need that kind of payoff we don't need to see people interact in horrible ways to add tension the tension's already there in the books that's an interesting point because i, I would in the, in the spirit of not being polite i would <laughs> come back to you and and argue with you about that later on but go ahead Nate. um yeah i think speaking of tension i think there's was sort of a tension between the way they, the message of the show and sort of the aesthetics of the show, right? The message of the show was always the Game of Thrones is a distraction, right? It is, you know, you can't say it's a climate change metaphor because he started writing, but it is sort of the same thing, right? It's the Game of Thrones is a distraction from the true threat, which is the White Walkers. But the problem is we spent, you know, five or six seasons being very invested in the Game of Thrones. And, you know, and the show itself is still sort of doing this in its marketing, you know, they you know, they released those character posters with a bunch of different people sitting on the Iron Throne. And so they're still trying to play up the, the oh, like who who's going to win in the end when recently the show has been trying to tell us, well, it doesn't matter who wins in the end because they all need to defeat the White Walkers. And it's sort of there's just a kind of a conflict there that the show hasn't quite been able to resolve. So that's interesting, too, because I, I sort of see this as uh, kind of a misdirection because I think that whatever happens in that battle with the White Walkers, there's still one more battle coming after that. And that's north against south and and but but anyway that's just my opinion spencer what do you think i think the trouble with the show is that it started out with rather profound and insightful things to say about human nature the human condition patriarchy uh the relationships of power that uh scale up from the interpersonal uh to the broad and social and now it's just run out of things to say about those things and it's not really a satisfying substitute to see a kind of gift fantasy battle conclusion with some sort of aftermath thoughts about uh, political conflict that appears and has always appeared, despite our being invested in far less salient. To speak to the prior point, what had made the show, I think everyone would probably agree, um, such a success uh, was, was precisely how felicitously it uh, handled imbalance between uh, these so-called real conflict, um, these, you know, sort of uh, epical fantasy monsters, um, with the kind of phony conflict that highlights uh, the, the, you know, typical uh, human uh, inability to, to, emphasize, to emphasize a true threat and tragically uh, fall into uh, internecine interfactional fighting. Uh, the trouble with that was the interfactional fighting was where you actually saw the profundity located. And now we're looking at something of a spent ember of really good ideas. And however the show concludes, it's going to be very, very difficult and it's challenged to recapture that sort of sameness. So do you think, asking you the same question that I put to the others, do you, do you trace this, this change to season seven? And do you think it had anything to do with them no longer having the books to rely on for their narrative. I think there's something to that. Um, there's that hilarious scene, I want to say at the beginning of six, 
uh, where making is fun. This show's been kind of bad for pretty long time. <laughs> um, where, you know, you remember, you know, Tyrion and Marine going to the, the dragon pit, uh, trying to, to coax one of these dragons into service for the action. Daenerys. And, you know, he comes out and he's talking to Daenerys and he says, if I ever get an idea like him again, punch me in the face. You just thought, that's that's just not this character. Mm. Right. Uh, as 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 we go sort of further up, look, you get this kind of fantastic textural play uh, where the adaptation has outpaced the centrality of the initial source material. Um, but nevertheless, it's kind of become its own thing that's just less interesting. Okay, great. Let me be reductivist here for a second and, and ask each of you a two-part question. Um, who is going to wind up on the Iron Throne and who should wind up on the Iron Throne in a perfect world? Or who would you like to see end up on the Iron Throne? It's open for anybody who wants it. I, I'm actually going to say that a lot of the who is going to finally be the one person on the Iron Throne stuff might be a red herring. And the show is basically going to end with like a dragon melting the Iron Throne and they're going to kind of unite as a kingdom with like multiple rulers. Uh, in a way so that, you know, they will fulfill the who is the final leader of Westeros without having to actually, you know, kill off all of the other characters who, you know, want to be on the Iron Throne so that, you know, just Daenerys gets to be it. Who who would you like to? Is that the end? I think I'd want? like Daenerys just to be it. <laughs> I think that'd be nice to okay. finally conclude her plot, which has spent way too much time in Marine. Uh -huh. Like, that's that's... My other problem with the show where they kind of extended a lot of the plots too far because that's how far they extended in the books. So, you know, Daenerys has spent, what, four seasons in Marine dealing with all of the slavers stuff, uh, which is, I assume, just, you know, it, it, it just ends with her leaving. <laughs> That's it. it. We were in there for like four to five seasons of just, hey, here are these, you know, uh, stand in for Middle Eastern people who are so weird, according to uh, the uh, uh, Westerosi. Uh, and then they just leave to participate in the big overarching plot. OK, uh, I think that the person who should have the throne is the person who deserves the throne, who, which is Daenerys. I think Daenerys absolutely deserves the throne. She's a competent leader. She has armies, plural, at her back at this point, uh, plus two dragons, three in the book. Um, but I think in order for her to get the throne, she has to kill Jon Snow. Um, we saw in the- Wow. We, yeah, well, in, we there are two reasons for that. Um, one in the show, when we see her having her vision, uh, I think it was season three, uh, she has, or was it two? She know. has a, a vision. Um, she is in the throne room and she is by the iron throne but snow is falling so i think that is a metaphor and the other reason i have is in the books um there's the legend of azora high who fought the who fought the uh night, was it the night king no the, he, he, fought the, the yeah, he fought the yeah. fought the darkness and uh azora high had to slay evil with a sword but in order to temper a sword he had to temper it through the heart of his wife, Nissa Nissa. And as we know, Valyrian, the language of Valyrian has both, is gender neutral. So uh, the prince who was promised could be Daenerys. And in that case, if the metaphor continues, Jon Snow is Nissa Nissa and she has to plunge her sword through his heart. 
So you think, just to be absolutely clear about this, that she's going to make a deliberate choice to kill Jon Snow yes. in order to ascend to the Iron Throne? Yes, I do. Wow, that's I do. pretty bold, I, I think. I do, I do, because, you know, look at the books, look at the... Uh, okay. King's okay. blood yeah. is magical. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, exactly. Okay. Um, this is me speaking as someone who has spends way too much time reading uh, Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire Tumblr blogs. So this is not an idea that <laughs> comes from me, you know, without any inspiration. This is sort of an idea that I've seen bumbling, sort of buzzing around a lot. And it's that basically um, Daenerys and Jon Snow and probably Tyrion are going to end up riding dragons to fight the White Walkers. And they will sacrifice themselves to sort of eliminate, you know, the heart of winter and, you know, eliminate the White Walkers once and for all. And it will be the, up to the other characters to sort of pick up the pieces after them. So, you know, that that's the purpose of your brands and your senses. Um, and I think it's also in these sort of circles that I, that I enjoy reading, it's also... Uh, a popular idea that the seven kingdoms will yeah, similarly they will not be under one ruler that you know that the, the the only thing that united the seven kingdoms together in the first place was dragons and you know and once the targaryens lost their dragons there was sort of a hundred year period of splintering um and then you know they sort of got united again by robert and then now that you know now that daenerys is here they thought that they might unite again under her but probably no they might uh, you know it might just sort of go back to being you know, the way they were before Aegon the Conqueror. So, you know, you have the North ruling the North and the Stormlands ruling the Stormlands and it's sort of up to this sort of next generation to, you know, not be at war with each other, but sort of pick up the pieces, but kind of go their own separate ways and realize that, you know, there's not, nobody is going to be strong enough to rule the whole seven kingdoms after and, this stretch. And you, Nate, you, you'd like to see that. that uh, I think, I think that, that, feels sort of at one with the themes and the narrative of the story and the characters. And yeah, I, I buy that. And that seems like a, it would be a satisfying ending to me. Okay. Spencer, what do you think? What do you want? So first, uh, I'm less interested in who sits on the Iron Throne than why they ought to sit on the Iron Throne. Uh, the politics of this show have captivated me throughout, you know, however many seasons and however many you know, books and ever expanding numbers of peripheral books um, for, you know, I think to George R. R. Martin's credit and to Benioff Off Mice's credit, uh, real fascination with the intricacies of power and the meanings of power. And so we've yet to really see an argument for what it is that Daenerys would do on the Iron Throne. There's that famous, I want to break the wheel uh, speech that she delivers to Tyrion before they, they leave Marine. And it sounds great. You have no idea the, the further you inspect it, what it actually means. Um, similarly with Jon Snow, he has no vision. Uh, you know, it's, I think they're, they've, they've sort of written themselves into a couple options. One of them is to fulfill uh, these, these kinds of, um, you know, long telegraphed uh, historical uh, and, and inter, you know, interworld uh, myths uh, that, that you guys have already referenced, they can do that. Um, and that, you know, sort of gets you to the setup of the, you know, John, Daenerys, Tyrion, you know, three heads of the, of the dragon thing. Or they could kind of steer to uh, what I think would be, you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind seeing this, um, closer to the spirit of the show and the spirit of the books, which is that uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's tragedy, it's randomness, and it's injustice that actually control the world. Um, and so, you know, I would personally like to see uh, Sansa 
on the throne of all of the people that we've, we've seen, she's the one who exhibits uh, the best combination of, uh, of wisdom, of guile, uh, and of concern for people beyond herself. I think it's going to be Gendry. Um, we've, we've sort of seen wow. now this, particularly in the last season, this obsession uh, with, um, with, with putting you know, Gendry as this reincarnated, once again, hopeful Robert Baratheon figure. And, and that is, is kind of who I think, you know, in the spirit of George R. R. Martin's works, is the kind of person he would think ultimately, you know, in a kind of fort and broad end of Hamlet way, uh, ends up just sort of inheriting the ashes of, of, what's, of what's to come. Then, you know, life works out in, in such a way that it's not, you know, stories of grand destiny. It's stories of circumstance and of injustice that, that lead us to, to the kind of miserable conclusions uh, that shape our lives. That's a really interesting uh, notion, Spencer. Um, thank you for sharing that. I have a question for you. You, you talk about Sansa being the sort of, um, I, don't, I don't know what perfect is the right word, but this combination of, um, I guess, a, a moral core, but um, wisdom and also you use the word guile. And there is a, actually a scene in season six where somebody, I don't remember if, whether it was Arya or John, somebody said, uh, Sansa makes a comment that she's learned a lot from Cersei. And I'm sort of wondering, is Guile something that seems to be something Jon Snow doesn't have because he refused at King's Landing to, to, to say that he would bend the knee to uh, Cersei. But is Guile something that we see or George Martin sees or the show is trying to promote as a necessary characteristic of good leadership? Stark lost his head. Uh, it's promoted precisely that idea that if you are looking for heroes, you come to the wrong place. The heroes won't just get themselves killed; they'll get lots of people killed. Jon Snow is a stunning example of being a good, you know, like Rob Stark before him, of being a good hero and disastrous commander. He just hasn't yet experienced the ultimate disaster. And it's Sansa, you know. For, for everything that we say about her, like, this is someone who's, who is willing to sacrifice her youngest brother uh, on the theory that he was, you know, get all paid the hands of, of Francis Snow. Uh, I think the show is kind of setting us up at least to understand that this is the direction that they go in, that these sorts of, of moral compromises are, in fact, necessary if you're going to actually wield power. And if you take the understanding that wielding power for a reason on behalf of other people, on behalf of whatever it is, you know, vision these various characters can or should be avatars of, uh, is necessary if you want to actually make your world better. Or alternatively, if you want to burn, it's still necessary. That, what do the rest of you think about that? Well, what about your opinion on <laughs> who you think uh, is going to win? Um, who do I think is going to? I, I don't know. I see, I... I'm kind of an idealist, Spencer, in that I, I, there's, I'm a Stark person to begin with, <laughs> and I want Jon Snow on the Iron Throne. And that leads to this question. I guess it's a bone to pick with Carol and Ivan, because I think you guys are big Danny rooters. And, um, <laughs> here's a, I, I, I was rewatching season six, and I watched the episode where she burned, her dragon burned uh, Sam's uh, brother and father together mm -hmm. because they refused to take the knee. 
And at the end of the episode, they had this interview with one of the showrunners. And he's talking about, I, Carol, we were talking about this. He's talking about how, um, you know, so this is what happened. And we sort of let, and we're, we're not making any judgment. We're letting the viewer decide whether her act is moral or not. And I'm thinking to myself, she just burned two people to death because they wouldn't bend the knee. And how is that moral in any way, in any universe? How is that moral behavior? She clearly didn't listen to to John when he said, and Tyrion when they said, don't burn the cities. Don't don't attack yet with your dragons. She didn't listen to that. I think she's a, a character of serious moral, uh, what's the word I'm looking She's seriously dubious morality. Um, but you guys seem to love her. Yeah, I do. I I would say that part of what Daenerys has been learning is the main lesson of the show, which is that, you know, unlike how we've always been drilled into by like all fantasy games and like, you know, the more, you know, regular style book, the lawful good decision is not always the decision that is going to end up rewarding you. Like if she hadn't burned the Tarleys, maybe they would have gone off and managed to raise their banners against her in a way that would have inconvenienced or damaged her later. Instead, she took the problem off of the board completely in a way that might have seemed very violent. Are you endorsing, are you endorsing I mean, thoughts? I'm not saying that I would burn all of my enemies to death if they refused to bend the knee to me, but I'm not not saying that. She killed two Tarleys. She could have killed the entire army, mm -hmm, but she mm -hmm. chose to kill, to cut off the head, but just the head. But the uh, the thing is about Danny is that she's actually a, a stand-in for George R. R. Martin. George is Danny. You, the fact is, George is Danny. George used to have a family fortune and uh, his family lost their money in the Depression, but he used to walk past his great-grandfather's house every day and know that he once had that that lovely house. And he used to walk past the dock that used to have his family name. And now it was just known as Dock 23. So so Danny is not the stand-in, the sexual or emotional stand-in that you think she is. I think she is George R. R. Martin. Well, and the other thing about Danny is that her claim to the fame, and she finally in season six admits that her father was a psychotic, but the fact that her father was overthrown, which she considers an illegitimate uh, grasp of power, was actually, if you ask me, kind of a good thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't put much stock in that claim either. What do you think, Nate? Um, in terms of Daenerys, what do you, what do you think of Daenerys? But, uh, I think, I think just the fact that she sort of is struggling with how much violence to unleash. You know, I think that that's part of an interesting character is they sort of make these decisions that you don't agree with and they learn lessons. And so I think the fact that she executed two prisoners, uh, you know, Jon Snow also executed people, you know, they, they, those were people who had, I guess, not tried to kill him, actually killed him. But, you know, I think, I think the fact that she did this sort of symbolic act of politics to dissuade other armies from rising against her, I don't really hold that against her. You know, I don't agree with all of her decisions, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the fact that she has made decisions I don't agree with um, makes her an illegitimate claim to the throne. I think they all have sort of made mistakes and done sort of bad things. And I think that's part of a character's arc. You know, a character makes mistakes and does things that we would think are horrible along the way. And, you know, and they hopefully they end up in an interesting place. It definitely makes her interesting, but I'm not sure it makes me like her very much. Spencer, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about Danny? I want to know what Danny's actually for. 
Um, she has some uncomfortably uh, white messiah tendencies to her. Um, you know, there's a particularly difficult thing that I think the show probably isn't going to have the space to deal with, but I'm really fascinated by, which is what we think happened in Marine. Uh, we, we have, as the, the kind of bedrock rationale uh, for Daenerys' rule, uh, her claim to be a liberator. Well, she's liberated lots of people, and then she's left. And the show gives us a ton of uh, internal reason, as human nature does as well, and history does uh, tremendously, uh, to believe that you know once you know she with her you know reptilian nuclear weapons ultimately leaves, backsliding to the unjust status quo ante results. That's what happened when Slayer's Bay when she went to Marine, and now that she's left Marine uh, and put you know, her, her, her side piece, uh, who's clearly unqualified to govern uh, as the proxy for, for her rule. Is there any reason to believe that Marine and Slater's Bay more broadly uh, is, is well-governed or free, or that uh, the revanchist, you know, slave bourgeoisie has reasserted its authority? I think the problems with, with what it is that Targaryenism under Danny is supposed to represent uh, sort of live in the lacuna of, of that, you know, answer that we're never gonna, gonna quite get. And it sort of strains uh, credulity, particularly given the logic of how unsentimental the show at its best has been, and these books at their best are, uh, to say that, uh, you know, she left, she took her power with her, uh, she left this random ex-mercenary who she liked having sex with, who's not literally says fuck the city in his last scene to run the place that that's just working out well uh there's the additional uncomfortable uncomfortable fact that you know to be somewhat cynical but i don't think really overly so uh all of the liberative acts that she's performed uh have kind of been in the service of or at least had the effect of amassing her power giving her an army uh, focused entirely on the conquest of a land that is not the land that she's liberated all of these people from. So it seems a whole lot like an outsider uh, using liberationism, which is an incredibly powerful and profound thing, the foremost aspiration of the human spirit, as a means to an end which is itself uh, ambiguously moral from Danny's perspective. Again, what 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 actually is the vision on off city? You know, I'm going to break the wheel. You know, you, 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 if, if, you're, if you're really going to get into, you know, a, a revolutionary and, and liberatory uh, sense of this term, that that's going to be what the rule is, you've got to flesh it out more. And I don't understand where it's actually going. And, you know, don't think it's going to be really satisfying if, if, you know, we're just going to leave it with a kind of, you know, vision and slogan one thing I have to say about the show is it does sort of feel like I have trouble talking about the show in these terms as it's gone on. I feel like you could sort of answer these questions um, in the first four seasons, but there's it doesn't feel like there's sort of a coherent world building strategy or sort of a set of internal motivations that line up with the characters. People, the characters are sort of just doing things because the plot needs them to do things in a way in the, these past two seasons. And so it's hard to sort of talk about them as these sort of political actors in a way, because that doesn't, that is, that does not seem to be the 
what's foremost on the minds of the writers. Like the reason we are not going to learn what happens about Marine because the writers do not care about Marine and it is not really a real place to them, you know, in a way that sort of King's Landing in the first two seasons was a real place, if that makes well, sense. I think they cared about Marine in the, in the sense of Danny's art. I think that uh, potentially, potentially. But I think I think like the I feel like so many of the answers is like, oh, well, why would character X do action Y in season? You know, in the past few seasons, it's been because we need them to be in place A with mm. Army B, you know, and it's it's you sort of feel the 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 plot. You, the plot threads are so much more apparent in a way that in in the first few seasons, it was sort of, there was more sort of internal character consistency. And I feel like that is the one thing that has gotten lost there. And I think it would be interesting to, you know, fully explore the metaphor of Daenerys as a symbol of Western intervention into this Eastern space where she doesn't know the values and she's imposing her own values and then just taking all the resources she's pillaged and running. But, you know, no one's going to say, oh, it's bad that you took all of these resources and all of these people and ran because you have to go fight the White Walkers, which are the threat that we all admit has to be fought. Danny has been learning to rule. That's why she's in Marine. She's learning how to control a city, how to create laws and rules. We see a little more of that in the books where she's passing judgment on, on people who come to her. Uh, I, I really like that. But uh, the Targaryens, they you know, their house words are fire and blood. She has these motivations kind of baked into her. Uh, she just wants to rule, but but she also has the insanity baked into her. So I'm thinking also just because Danny gets the throne doesn't make it a happy ending because I also suspect she's going to succumb to the Targaryen madness. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I really do. Because that would make it a bittersweet ending. And George says, that the book will have a bittersweet ending. So you see her on the at the end on the Iron Throne, mm. having killed Jon Snow. Yes, and completely mad. <laughs> yes, so yes. that's pretty bitter. I yeah, do, I do, but I, it will be glorious. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about we haven't? I'm surprised nobody voted for Tyrion uh, being on the Iron Throne. What do we first? One question I have about Tyrion. I'm, I'm interested in what you guys think about him and what's going to happen to him, but. Why do you think he's so bothered by when he sees um, John going to Danny's room? Is that just he thinks it's distracting or is there something deeper going on there? I think politically it's kind of a hard sell, if that makes sense. It, it sort of opens John up. It opens them both up to claims that they're sort of only doing it for each other, if that makes sense, instead of for the greater good. It, you know, it's easier to sort of paint them as a power mad couple who, you know, is sort of Antony and Cleopatra type, if that makes sense. Um, and I think it's, it's he also, I think, enjoyed sort of being the primary advisor. And he's, you know, as, as, any, as any natural person would feel, if two of their friends started hooking up, you start feeling like a third wheel. So I think, you know, I think there's sort of a strategic element to it, but I think there's surely an emotional element is that like, oh, he thought they were sort of three sort of equal partners in this and suddenly oh well two of them are boning and he doesn't even know the incest element and i'm sure he would be sure he would be even more freaked out if he knew that do you think we have any um surprises coming along with respect to Tyrion, who Tyrion is or or anything uh there is there right there was there's uh there's some fan theories that Tyrion is not actually tywin's son those have never really rung true to me at this point Really, and at this point in the show, it kind of seems like a moot point. Tywin has been dead for a few years, and so if they pulled that out of their jacket pocket, I think people would be like, eh, who cares? So what? Um, in terms of Tyrion's any, any surprises, I think 
the surprise would be him getting something to do. I think in the pa the past few years, he hasn't. Once he got together with Danny, the the writer sort of characterized his role in the show as here's a guy who gives Danny advice, and that is sort of all he does. And there hasn't he hasn't really had an identity or sort of any agency apart from that. It's he gives Danny advice, and she either follows it and he's happy, or she doesn't follow it and he's sad. Um, the hope is that in you know in the final season he will have some sort of reckoning with Cersei. I think that has always sort of been his main antagonist and his main sort of wound as a character is sort of his relationship with his family. And yeah, hopefully the resolution of the Jamie Cersei, Tyrion trio, you know, hopefully it comes to some sort of interesting development. And I hope it does. See, I think that uh, Tyrion's heritage is actually important because uh, he's theoretically, according to fan theory, not the son of Tywin, but the son of Aerys the Mad. So he would be uh, Danny's half brother in that case. Yeah, I do wonder about that because I feel like there is a risk when you get into those fan theories of being so much about the blood of the characters, okay. and that that feels like not quite the the point that George R. R. Martin likes to make, and that like oh everything everybody everybody's destiny is determined by who their secret dad is. But it would give him the ability to ride the dragon, and the dragon has three heads. Uh, that is true. That is true. Yeah. But there's also, I mean, you could kind of hand wave that and get around it by saying Bran could warg into a dragon and oh, that right. would make it, oh. that would, he could ride a dragon that way. So, yeah. you, you know, and that would sort of be paying back when he made the saddle for Bran in season one. And right. so, yeah, so I don't know. I'm not saying that it's totally wrong, but I, I'm not a huge fan of more secret. You know, John has secret parents. I don't think we need more secret parents coming out of the woodwork. Actually, there are, and there are theoretically only two dragons on the right side right now but anyway go ahead uh i think that the problem with Tyrion is that everybody acknowledges that like peter dinklage is the best and you know biggest name actor on the show but as the show gets increasingly martial and since he's not put in the position in the earlier seasons that he was of people shoving Tyrion into martial battles in order to kill him uh he gets less to do uh, I think a, a friend of mine suggested that he will wind up uh, ruling Casterly Rock because that is what he has always wanted. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, Spencer, what, do you, what are your thoughts about Tyrion? I mean, I think he's a, somebody who also seems to combine a certain facility or a skill at guile, but also has a very strong um, moral center. Yes, but if the lesson is that the most uh, talented, meritorious, and competent person uh, actually rules, then Hillary Clinton would be president. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what you know this story kind of you know drills into us again and again and again is like that's just not how this works. And you know when you look at you know Tyrion from the perspective of you know what Westeros knows about this guy, it's ludicrous that he would be you know remotely in, in the discussion about Boyd, he's an enormous propaganda opportunity for Cersei. Uh, what does Westeros know about this guy? They think that he is a monster. They think that, and you know, correctly so, uh, that he's uh, a regicide, uh, you, you know, because Tywin was truly the king of Westeros, uh, with Joffrey as, as, his, as his figurehead puppet. Um, and, you know, Tyrion is the demon monkey. There's, there's not a chance ever that this guy could rule, and I've, I've been somewhat surprised that uh, they haven't sort of done more uh, with how Tyrion 
while substantively, you know, a benefit to Daenerys, is an enormous political liability. Okay, I, I meant more like not people predicting that he would rule, which I think is clearly not going to happen, but that they would like to see him rule. But anyway, let's talk about Jamie for a second. Jamie's obviously undergone this huge um, evolution, um, and yet you keep sort of wanting him to, um, you know, be a little bit more assertive with respect to his opposition to um, Cersei, and, and he just... Is it just that he's so infatuated with her and so in love with her that he can't he can't overcome that? I mean, clearly he sees that what she's doing is insane, but he always stops himself short of doing anything. Um, I mean, I guess the last thing we saw with Jamie was he took off for the north. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he finally did. I, he finally did break with her last season, I believe. But yeah, I think their identities were so closely intertwined. You know, they weren't just she wasn't just the love of his life. She was also his twin. And they sort of considered each other reflections of each other. And so they just had this tight, lifelong bond that, yes, it took years and years of Cersei being sort of obviously terrible for it to break. But, you know, it's sort of understandable that he would, you know, if anybody has a mental block, it would be him for her. Right. Yeah. Plus, we are kind of thinking of Jamie now. Uh, in the early seasons before he met Brienne, he approved of everything that Cersei did. Yeah, he was true. a big fan. He was on that Cersei train. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, he's, you know, he's had that sort of face turn, but yeah, he started as, I remember a tweet I sent out, you know, after watching the second episode of the show, I was like, does Jamie Lannister ever stop being a dick to everybody he meets? <laughs> yeah, Jamie's actually the one who pushes Bran. It's Jamie, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and because of that, a friend of mine, who uh, Pat Spinoggle, who has his own Game of Thrones blog, he says that Jamie is going to go north to join up with the armies to fight the White Walkers. But while en route, he goes to Winterfell and apologizes to Bran, which I think is an interesting theory. Uh, but uh, you know that he is destined to kill Cersei, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's right. If you're putting money on anybody to kill anybody in the final season, yeah. that I think they Vegas sort of you stopped taking money on that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of those things that's been foreshadowed so hard at yeah. this point that yeah. if anybody else got to kill Cersei, it'd kind of be anticlimactic. Yeah. 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 You know, Cersei, Brienne, yeah. perhaps. Maybe but Brienne possibly, doing yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, it, it, if yeah. Brienne does it because Jamie can't? Right. Well, yeah. I, I, but so Arya's not killing Cersei? That's no, I think the, yeah. right, the, the, the poetic, the dramatic irony is just too perfect is that Cersei has spent her entire life hating Tyrion because she believes Tyrion is the little brother who's a threat to her. She forgets that she is the elder twin and that the brother who she was in love with for her whole life is actually going to be the one who kills her. Yeah. Uh, you know? Plus, there's that witch's prophecy yeah. uh, that says one of your brothers is going to kill you. Not going to yes. say which. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing about Jamie, before we get to Spencer's opinion about this, is that um, you know, even before the show starts, more or less, he, um, we know, or I'm not sure the timing of this. We know that he killed the the mad the, the mad king, right? Yes. Or he yes. sent the yes. And but but so originally he's like this king killer, king slayer, heiress. Yeah. But then it turns out that he did it for a very good reason. So yeah. there was this there was this other side to him mm -hmm. from the start. We just didn't know it. Mm. Um, yeah. And he didn't care if people knew. It was sort of this, he had this vanity about him and that he knew he'd done it for the right reason. And if other people sort of didn't read his mind and automatically know that, then screw them. You know, he, he thought he didn't need to explain himself to people. When I was reading you know? book one, um, I thought, oh, well, here was the most loathsome character ever yeah. written. And then a friend said, oh, no, no, in book three, he becomes the hero. And I said, 
you lie. He <laughs> becomes a point of view character in book two or book, book three? Three, I yeah. believe. Yeah. 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 Two? It was two. two. Okay. okay. Uh -huh. What do you think, Spencer, about Jamie? I think we shouldn't exaggerate this face turn. Uh, this is still a guy who's been sort of an all-time terrible father. Uh, huh? And now we're talking about not just him killing the mother of his, of his three dead children, but uh, possibly in utero with her fourth. Um, in the... In the show, they show him explicitly raping Cersei. Yeah, that. I, 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 I kind of don't really know why we're not still upset about that. Oh, no, I'm um, still upset about no, that. We're, we're all very yeah. upset about that. Good, 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 good. Yeah. It, it, just, it just seems to have gone kind of on the sort of back burner of discussion of this show and, and that character specifically. I think because uh, that scene was just sort of a muddle and that like in the books it was more ambiguous and then the creators yes. afterwards were like, oh, we meant it to be ambiguous. And so there was sort of a weird, it was sort of in this weird gray area where people weren't quite sure if they it was just creatively mishandled or something. And I think people have sort of chosen to memory hole it as mm -hmm. that, I think, because it's just too tricky to get into otherwise. For me, it was the first time that the show really intruded on the spirit of the books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this is the thing I, I, I did want to discuss about this show. It's kind of like the level of sexual assault in the show is, I think, one of the reasons why people are kind of tired of it because of how Benioff and Weiss have used it as a sensationalistic aspect. Like the, the first episode, it ends with uh, Daenerys being assaulted by Khal Drogo, incest, and then attempted child murder. <laughs> And the attempted child murder is the best part of that. That's the least objectionable part. And it's like, it's also felt like culturally, I, the show has aired during the time when society finally kind of decided that women might be people. So it's, it's kind of like, I don't want to see this show that uses these aspects like this. I feel like that's why Everybody, when they they announced a Confederate, was like, oh, this is definitely going to be bad because Benioff and Weiss had not built up that goodwill by being, you know, competent storytellers who don't sensationalize problematic aspects. But also because it was a show about Confederates. Oh, yeah, yes. that was the main thing. It was, it was a show primarily made by two white guys about a Confederacy. Wait, so do you think, do you not, think that as they've gotten farther away from George Martin that they've tempered that down? Uh, do you think that was a George Martin thing rather than a, uh, you don't think so, Carol? No, because uh, in the books when we see the show, when we see the scene with Danny and Khal Drogo on their wedding night, he seduces her. He seduces her. It was not rape. And the only reason I was able to kind of, you know, put that in a memory hole is in the show is because there is only so much time you have to show a seduction and obviously the the series decided to go for the the quick version. So are you are you offended at all by the show? Um, of I should be <laughs> more more than I am. I was def definitely offended by the Cersei Jamie scene. That it just seemed so very uh, unnecessary as well. Uh, so I'm not as I'm not easily offended. But as a feminist, I think yeah, women could be treated better. But at least I know that men are treated quite horrifically too. Yeah, and, and I felt that the the point where I kind of turned my opinion on the show was the elongated Sansa torture subplot. 
like that was the point where I was like, oh, this is just one character being continuously put through the ringer in a very sensationalized way that's not sensitive to the level of constant assault and trauma that she's going through. And I don't enjoy watching this. You know, you could say the same thing about Theon. I think this mm-hmm. the same kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, it seemed to go on forever. Yeah, that, that, the, but Theon go. deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> what do we think about Theon? Let's talk about that. Is Theon, oh. Theon definitely is, is he's, He's toast, right? He's yeah. dying at the end. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyone disagree with that? I, I don't know. I feel like he is one of the few male characters who's been tortured so explicitly like that, that to just off him at this point would kind of not make sense for the character. He has to survive what he has gone through in order to demonstrate how much he has changed. Unless, because of all the characters, yeah. he's changed an immense well, amount. But what, what, uh, what is a more poetic or stronger sense of redemption than dying to save your sister mm. that that would be yeah i think that's that's certainly a possibility but he he does there is something about him that feels like weirdly a survivor and that he's you know same with sansa right there are these two characters who've gone through all these terrible things and are completely different than they were before and sort of they had sort of the most sort of romantic illusions in season one about what the kind of world they were living in and both of them learned very harsh lessons about the nature of this world. And yeah, I don't know. I think it makes sense. Yeah, I don't think uh, in any means that he will be ruling the Iron Islands at the end, but it does, you're right, you could see a way in which he is sort of a trusted advisor at the end and survive. To whom? Uh, to is, to his sister. I think, oh, okay. did she, she is still alive, right? Yeah, I feel like, okay, I love yeah, that we can't alive. even properly no, keep track so of the show. So many people watching. died in yeah, the last season, and, but she was, she, last, but, um, last time we started, she was taken captive by Euron. Yeah, that seems yeah, like it's a perfect. She's at, she's yes. at King's Landing in the. Yeah, that seems like a perfect America. setup for Theon to rescue her and right. then be her, but then not claim the Iron Islands for himself. You know, because right. he's a guy who was so about himself and so into his own glory that right. I think what his main arc has been learning to sort of put himself second to realize that his sister sort of is more of a true leader than mm-hmm. he is. Right. You talk about um, evolution of of uh, like Sansa and and Theon, but another character who's she didn't start at the same place that Sansa did. She always had a little bit of a violent street to her. But, but um, I, I mean, I think they've made a big point about how much Arya has changed. And, yeah. and, you know, the whole thing about her wolf, seeing the wolf and saying, that's not you. And really, maybe that's about her rather yeah. than the wolf. And um, and, and the scene of um, Sansa watching from the balcony as she's fighting Brienne and realizing that this is who her sister has become. What do we think? What do we see happening for for uh, Arya? I mean, we all love Arya, right? Does oh, anyone yeah, love oh, yeah. Spencer? No, do you fantastic. Spencer? Do you yeah. love Arya? Please say yes. Yeah, she's the character that you're sort of you second you're you're meant to second guess the least, right? Like right. You, you, she's sort of the audience just sort of pure heartedly roots for her, right? In a way, um, what we think is going to happen to her? I mean, it's it's curious, right? The show has sort of had mixed feelings about how violent she is. You know, there are some times when it's like, oh yeah, awesome, badass, sorry. And then there are other moments when the show is like, is it right that this teenager has killed so many people and what is it doing to her soul? And I think uh, I think it, that is sort of going to be the ultimate measure of how hopeful or how cynical the ending is, is what happens to Arya, right? Oh. There is, you could see a hopeful ending where she, you know, once the time for murdering people is done, she sort of learns how to put down her sword and have a nice, peaceful life and, 
you know, or being sort of, you know, the first defender of Winterfell, being Sansa's bodyguard, something like that, you know, or there is a sort of more cynical ending where she sort of it becomes poisoned by all this violence that has overtaken her most formative years. But that's really interesting to me because I think what we're all saying here, and um, with the exception of me, is that um, we are saying this is ultimately a cynical show. I mean, Spencer said guile is something that you need. You're telling me that it's okay for um, Danny to burn two people to death because it's politically it's cool, yeah. expedient. Um, so in that case, we can it seems to me we should be expecting the cynical ending. That this is a do we all agree that this is a at its heart this is a cynical show and we should not be sitting here expecting some sort of idealistic happy ending. Well, I think it's it's certainly a more cynical show than the books, right? The books have a have a little more romance in the books after Ned's death have repeatedly emphasized sort of the power of his image and the power of this sort of positive role model that can inspire people even after he dies. Whereas the show just kind of leaves it as, well, he was honorable and he died, so therefore being honorable is bad. You know, they haven't sort of shown the, the positive legacy of a Ned Stark type character or a Rob Stark type character. So yes, certainly more cynical than the books. Um, I do think there is sort of a note of hopefulness in that all the departures from, from George R. R. Martin's narrative are probably going to end up in the same place generally right like the all the all the things that they've changed have been changed in the service of getting to the same spot either more interestingly for television or quicker or you know with fewer characters and so yeah the thought is that it's you know it'll be like a sign curve or something where it's diverging now but they'll sort of come back at the same place and you know george r, r. martin has said that it will be a bittersweet ending and i'm fairly confident the ending will, of the show will likewise be bittersweet so what that means is up for us to determine but I don't know if that's the way that I'm leaning. There's a fan theory about what's going to happen to Arya ultimately that I that I'm on board with. Um, theoretically, Arya has is going to go west, just kind of walk off the face of the earth. Uh, she has not really felt at home anywhere. Uh, she's said that repeatedly in the book. She just she's not sure if she should go home. Will her mother still love her, knowing what she has done? Uh, and in both uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader and uh, from C.S. Lewis and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series, there are characters who at the end of their arc have just picked up and gone west, just sailed off into the sea. And uh, one of them was Reap a Cheap, a mouse in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And Arya has also compared herself to a mouse. And I think, well, well that's a good theory. Uh, also, I think that they've made such a big deal of the list and of how Cersei is at the top of it. But, you know, we also agree that Jamie is going to be the one to kill her. So I think it will be interesting to see how Arya deals with not being the one to kill Cersei and how that affects her because she's been driven by the, explicitly been driven by vengeance for her entire existence. So what does she have when she doesn't have her vengeance and it's taken from her? Would you would you say that ultimately at the heart this is a cynical show and you expect a cynical I, ending, I an idealistic ending? The thing is, we all think it's going to be a cynical ending. So the way they would play against expectations is to give us this hopeful, optimistic ending. Uh, but also at this point, you know, it's definitely a show where not everybody's going to survive. Not everybody's. I mean. Unless I'm getting one of my other genre shows uh, mixed up, I believe a character says, if you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ramsey. It was Ramsey who said uh, that. Uh, yeah. Ramsey, Ramsey's dead now. Yeah. So yeah. The, the time of, <laughs> was that no, happy ending for us? Yeah, no, the time of Ramsey may have passed. You know, Hopefully. that might be the lesson. Spencer, what do you think? Uh, idealistic? I mean, I think you pretty clearly think it's cynical. So do you expect it to end on that note? The show is cynical. George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire is ruthlessly unsentimental. That is the departure between the source material and the adaptation. At its best, when the show coincides uh, more with the spirit of George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, and I want to say that the show does an excellent job in its first three seasons of editing George R. R. Martin. Um, the presentation, particularly in the first season, is just exquisite. It gets rid of so much fat. Uh, it really strengthens the muscle, I think, and it's kind of gotten away from that. Uh, the show, since, has sort of now inclined us, I think, over the, the, the sort of back half of season seven, to sort of, you know, avenge the more cynical aspects of it and set us on a kind of glide path to, as you know, this discussion reflects, you know, a question of, you know, is it going to be John? Is it going to be Annie? Is it going to be Tyrion? Isn't it going to be these people who we think, you know, deserve to have this ending? And, you know, I, I see them, you know, going, you know, more towards um, a kind of Sansa or, or, or Gendry um, uh, re emphasis on, on the injustice, the fragility, uh, and the contingency of, of life and power. Um, particularly now that, uh, now that they killed Littlefinger. Um, again, I think it's just a less interesting question, you know, who ends up where than what they represent and what that says, not just about the show and the books, but about us and the world that we inhabit. Can anyone of the four of you imagine not watching the last episode of Game Stick, sticking with it all the way? I mean, it sounds like a bunch of you are pretty fed up with it, but can anyone imagine not sticking with it till the end? I mean, it's, it would be like not watching the end of Seinfeld, right? Yeah. It's like it's you have your you have your issues with it. And we've spent a long time talking about what is not good about the show. And yet we find ourselves drawn to it, I think, because it is sort of one of those last big four quadrant cultural moments in that everybody, you know, everybody of every demographic, you know, even if you don't have HBO somehow <laughs> finds a way, <laughs> finds a way to watch it. And no, it would be, I think you would be the sense of uh, FOMO would be, it would yeah. be too great. And I think even if, even if they don't sort of stick the landing, you want to see how they do it. Right. It's been, it's sort of like lost, right. It's like these shows that sort of capture your imagination and you, you just want to see, want to see how it turns out. So want to see what they thought of and even even if you kind of know at your heart that it maybe won't be as good as it was at the very beginning it's you're still gonna watch it like that would be crazy to just it'd be like not watching the end of well, a sports game or something you know like i don't know you know there's only so much time in the day and if you uh you know if you feel like you're wasting your time you might you might want to i mean you have stopped watching shows that, that you invest in oh, a lot certainly of, certainly yeah. yeah but i think i think you know, there's they say that, you know, there's some banks that are too big to fail. I think, yeah, yeah. you know, this show is too yeah. big to quit. You okay. know, I, I think a better question to ask is, are you going to watch the prequel series? Yeah. Okay. Yes. That, that, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's, that, I mean, I'm definitely going to watch it. 
I will be damned if I have to do more podcasting about this universe yeah. ever again. Yeah, that's. A, I think that's a, the prequel oh, yeah, series. Yeah. I think is a wait and see. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think that's. A, it's like okay, you watch the first episode, but you do not. You don't get married to the prequel. You no, know, I'm you uh, you you casually date it. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy to see Naomi Watts <laughs> yeah, in a big genre I'll series. I love her. Naomi Watts yeah. fan. Yeah. No, so. no, I, I'm on board. I've bought the T-shirt. I'm, <laughs> I've booked yeah. the tickets. I'm yeah. I'm on board. <laughs> so a little bit more um, obliquely. Um, Tell me if you can think of one, a show that that had a series finale that you loved and a show that had a series finale that you hated. The Sopranos. Yes, Spencer, absolutely. Uh, series finale that I loved, Breaking Bad. Um, series finale I hated, you know, The Sopranos, The Wire. Uh, lots of great shows, just, you know, don't sort of like exhaust their mandate. Um, I'm, I'm very interested to see what what this one will be, but you know, something like a Breaking Bad, which has you know a ruthless um, and efficient uh, tight story that it wants to tell uh, about uh, you know human nature and evil uh, and the insidious nature of, of compromise and the polluted nature of the pursuit of power. Um, that, that wrapped up exactly where uh, the logic of the show took it. I don't know where this one does. I don't really know where the logic of this show takes it. Um, and I'm not sure that the creators know. Well, I'll also pipe in here. I think the, the best series finale that I've ever seen, and that might be hyperbolic, but uh, right now the way I feel is um, The Americans, which I think ended just so perfectly um, in terms of uh, you know, I don't know how much should I worry about spoiling? Uh, a a yeah, little bit. Yeah. 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 I still got like one and a half uh, seasons. I think it's far. less than a year. Maybe that's the, uh, if yeah. it's a, more than a year old, you can spoil it. If it's less than a year, yeah. you can't. Maybe think, that's the best part. I just mark. think they got what they deserve. So, uh -huh. uh, which is not what I don't think anybody was expecting them to get. So anyway, what about you guys? Um, I have two that I really liked. Um, one's a little more expected than the other. The, the expected choice is Mad Men. I thought Mad Men really ended in a good interesting place you know you sort of you got little hints of what these characters would be in the 70s but it did it wasn't overly determinative and i think the vision of don it, it put you in a in a nice note of ambiguity and that like has he achieved genuine enlightenment or is he sort of using the idea of enlightenment to sell soda and you know that conflict was always sort of the heart of the conflict with the don draper character and i liked that a lot i thought that was really great and then my second one that i really liked is one that often pops up on the list of worst ones, but I really thought the Battlestar Galactica one was really, I mean, it's crazy and it's trippy and it's kind of silly, but it's, <laughs> it fits the show. You, is I it, really dislike the you really, Okay, all right, so we, that's good. I, I see, okay, so I, it's, it's a, that's a, obviously well, I, a controversial I, I, thing. On Mad Men, I, I have to say, mm -hmm. I think that that was, you know, I, I totally appreciate your point. I think that was a really cynical ending. That, that's yeah. the way I interpreted it. Yeah. But other people could interpret it a different way, yeah. uh, which made me, you know, I mean, you, you read a book like Difficult Men and mm -hmm. you read about who these people are and you sort of, it, you know what I mean? Yeah. It kind yeah. of like, uh, uh, anyway, okay. I was never a fan of Six Feet Under. I really, I just didn't like it. And cynical was the word I used throughout 
what the few times I watched it, but the ending had me weeping. It was just so oh, yeah. intense great, great and ending, emotional. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, as a geeky person, my favorite endings were, you know, Babylon 5 and Star Trek The Next Generation. I loved, loved those finales. Okay. They were great. I'm, I'm going to go a little left field. One of my favorite series finales, Cowboy Bebop. Which, okay. uh, fantastic show. It had 26 episodes and it was done. Right. It had a story that it wanted to tell and it told that story. All of the characters got closure. You know, they, they cut off the uh, story there, even though there was technically a movie that slots in between the last few episodes, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a work that knew where it was going, got to that point and finished. Okay. All right. So I'm going to just go around and give you guys a chance to... Uh tell us what you're up to what you anything you'd like to promote what's your next podcast going to be now that game uh, of thrones is on the way out uh we have not decided on a, a name for a rebranded podcast yet but it's basically going to be the same podcast but you know not explicitly tied to game of thrones so what do you think you'll be uh, talking about oh we'll be talking about you know television movies We're, we started doing some video game stuff okay. we discussed horizon zero dawn which is a great game uh and terrible if you're worried about climate change okay yeah. and tell us the name of the podcast uh, again uh the podcast is boars Gorn swords you can find us on twitter at boars Gorn swords you can find us boarsgornswords.com and you can find us on spotify and itunes and all that great thanks carol hi i'm working on a book about geek culture right now and i've already interviewed uh radio westeros <laughs> the, the two people run radio westeros i have an agent I ha don't have a contract yet, but, you know, soon, knock wood. Oh. I am at Carol Pinchevsky. It's C-A-R-O-L, pin like the needle, chef like the cook, sky like the thing above you. Uh, I cover national security, the Mueller investigation, uh, and all security and foreign policy relevant and effects of the Trump administration uh, for the Daily Beast. Uh, that's what I do when I'm not watching the show. Uh, when I am watching the show, uh, I podcast about it with Laura Hudson, who's a tremendous, tremendous cultural critic and, for my money, uh, the most salient uh, observer of Game of Thrones. She will be recapping uh, the series for Wired Magazine um, and we'll announce pretty soon uh, the, the next steps for our podcast, uh, which has been called Citadel Dropouts. Uh, so stay tuned. Great, thanks. Nate, what are you up to? Um, so I just finished my stint, my first season as Vulture's Oscar recapper. So I'm looking forward to not talking about the same 10 movies for six months. Um, and so Game of Thrones is actually going to be a nice vacation for me from talking about, you know, Stars Born, Roma and Green Book. Um, yeah, so I write about, you know, movies, but TV, a little bit of music on Vulture.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at the letter K, the letter N and the numeral eight. Great. I want to thank all you guys. This was really fun. And I'm really excited about uh, the new season. I'm hoping for some kind of idealistic inspirational ending but clearly Maybe. i'm insane so uh, <laughs> thank you all very very much thank you so much for having me yeah, thank, thank you for you. having us thank you for listening to paley matters brought to you by the paley center for media a nonprofit organization with locations in new york and los angeles dedicated to exploring the intersections between media and society every year the paley center holds a number of programs for the public and for industry professionals Check out some of our ongoing programs and upcoming events at paleycenter.org events. Also, don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow at Paley Center on Instagram and Twitter to stay updated on all things Paley. Our thanks to all of our guests tonight, Spencer Ackerman, Nate Jones, Carol Pinchevsky, and Ivan Rodriguez. 
Thanks also to Phil Marshall, Caitlin Caligari, Kishana Johnson, Laura Erhart, Nick Scherf, Maria Pagano, David Weinberg, Alexandra Meehan, and everyone at YouTube and at Palace Center for making this podcast possible. Our music is by Otis McDonald. If you like what we're doing, please follow our online publication at paleymatters.org. For more information about our programs or visiting the Paley Center in New York or Los Angeles, go to paleycenter.org. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube at Paley Center for Media and on Twitter and Instagram at Paley Center. Thank you.